Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut's identity is much deeper than the generalization of being a white, wealthy state. Today, where we live, we explore being black in Connecticut. We'll check in with the senior editor of the State of Black Hartford 2016. Compiled by the Urban League of Greater Hartford, it's an update from a 1994 book that examined the struggles of African Americans in our capital city. Later in the hour, we'll get perspective from leaders in the New Haven community, and we'll hear about efforts on a statewide level to meet the needs of black residents, including youth. We want to hear from you, too. Are you a member of the black community? What issues are most important to you? Join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, 22 years ago, the Urban League of Greater Hartford produced a book of essays that explored the black experience with a number of issues. Our guest, Stanley Battle, edited that version and the update recently released called The State of Black Hartford 2016. He's in studio with me. Stanley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Tell us about the report in 1994 and as you worked on uh, this new edition, uh, so to speak, um, you know, what has changed in Hartford? Well, the... Report 1994, if you look at it as a, a piece and a mosaic, and as it evolved, it really was a discussion and analysis of African-American growth, development, education, economics, and some of the struggles that the community faced in terms of law enforcement uh, and the like. And over the extent of that period, some things have changed and many things have remained the same which is really somewhat discouraging and frustrating. But if you go back to the original and we looked at education and some of the struggles with education and the need to make changes, it really evolved into the current state with charter and choice schools and the notion of more private intervention and the emergence of structures coming from corporations to intervene and take responsibility for public education. Now, some would say that that's a, a good idea, but there are ramifications to that which are, can be very dramatic and uh, damaging to the community. So the, the notion initially when the state of Black Hartford emerged, we were looking at community-based schools um, and neighborhood schools. Now we're looking at charter and choice schools. And the state of Connecticut, which has spent somewhere in the vicinity of $2 billion on new schools, but when you look at productivity and outcome and achievement, there's much to be desired. Let's dig into the many essays that are in uh, this uh, new edition, The State of Black Hartford 2016. Um, you talk about um, the outcomes of, of young people, uh, young uh, black youth uh, when they graduate, and, and talk a little bit about some of the essays. I think there was an essay in the, this uh, new edition that talked about how many of them, was it 63% need some type of remedial coursework when they go on to college? 
Well, the Chef O'Neill uh, chapter is the one I wrote, and then there's some other pieces that certainly touch on it. But bottom line is this. With, in this past year, approximately 45% of the children that graduated from the Hartford Public School System were not prepared to go on to a two- or four-year institution, nor were they prepared for a job. It gets close to a 50% uh, rate. If you control for some other, for other indicators, you see performance that is much weaker than that. If you back up and look at third-grade and sixth-grade performance, particularly in some of the schools that are neighborhood-based, there's been a history of failure. And the achievement gap is not decreasing. It's, quite frankly, widening. And there's a major variable in the achievement gap is economic development and income. So when those two things, when that when income goes in the opposite direction or the wrong direction, economics obviously plays a major role, then the notion of achievement for the children is not particularly uh, rewarding and certainly significant. One of the things that really has been missing is the, the rationale in terms of what should be done to work with parents as well as training adults for employment. When you look at a child who goes into kindergarten and is two years behind, I'm, I don't care what, who the teacher is. It's very difficult to make up two years. When you look at some of the other developmental issues, their preparation, their ability to, to think rationally, uh, reading, writing, and also some other developmental issues, uh, it becomes a real challenge for that teacher. So it's a, it's a race to try to bring that child up to an appropriate grade level uh, and also meet a grade level and then push them forward because kindergarten today is not what it used to be 22 years ago. To move from kindergarten today, you have to be able to write a complete sentence. Uh, you have to be able to spell. Uh, you certainly have to be able to read, but there are many children that come into kindergarten who are reading already. So the preschool preparation issue is one which really has to be addressed. We tend to, as children get older, and I say this with, with tongue-in-cheek, when they start uh, talking back by fifth and sixth grade, the love is gone. If the ability and skill level is not there, for some reason we seem to lose interest. K through three is very critical by third grade children are being tested. All too often today, there are children who are in kindergarten who are being dismissed from school. In other words, suspended. Um, second grade, third grade, suspended from school. Children that are in first and second and third grade, in theory, should not be suspended. But because of the uh, behavior and also the inability to deal with that behavior, they're put out. So that's another issue that has to be addressed. So there's, there's economics, there's developmental issues, uh, there are priorities that need to be uh, stressed, which really are not being uh, addressed in an appropriate way today. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking to Stanley Battle, senior editor of the State of Black Hartford 2016. It's a book uh, produced by the Urban League of Greater Hartford, an update from its 1994 edition. Uh, Stanley Battle is also director of the University of St. Joseph's Master of Social Work program. Um, you're talking a lot about education, but let's talk a little bit about poverty. We know that Hartford's one of the poorest uh, cities in the nation. When we look at um, any achievement that has happened over the last 22 years, you know, how you mentioned economic the importance of economic development. Um, what's happening within the black community in Hartford? Poverty is one of those elusive concepts, not only in Hartford, but across the country. Gary, Indiana, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Chicago, New York City, Springfield, Massachusetts. It goes on and on and on. It's um, one, we just came out of the holiday period. The number of drives for coats, for food, 
at Thanksgiving, the number of drives for, for food for families. These drives go on all year uh, uh, long. The amount of money that the country spends on poverty programs uh, is enormous for the United States. And irregardless, we tend not to be able to get a handle on it. The elusive concept is preparation, back to education, and the ability for one to uh, survive. And without those two things taken into consideration, I'm not sure we'll ever be, ever be able to get a handle on it. But then there's, a, there's an expectation. There's a notion that there are some groups, in theory, which are not able to compete and not able to care for themselves. In other words, they need the support from others. In other words, uh, alms of services going back to 1834 and uh, poor laws, reconstruction, taking a look at that. And there's not a heck of a lot that's changed. Churches are, are actively engaged to assist. Uh, there are nonprofits that do a fantastic job, and nonprofits right now are in siege because their funds are being cut uh, because the state has some serious financial issues. So if the state is hurting, nonprofits are going to hurt. If nonprofits are hurting, then communities are going to hurt. If communities are hurting, then it goes back to the public sector. Then the churches have to take, o- take on more and more responsibility. It's an endless cycle. The problem is we have not come to grips with properly preparing children as well as adults to break that cycle. There's a lot of research out there. Why hasn't that happened? If you have the data in front of you, you're, an, uh, you're a scholar. If you have the uh, data in front of you, you know, what, why hasn't there been um, change since 1994? We tend to do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, we look at public education, regardless of what everyone says, we're doing the same thing over and over and over again. In order to better educate some of our children, they don't need to be in school all day. Some of their time they should be working for pay because they need the money, particularly in urban school districts and suburban as well and rural, in order to support themselves. Let's not be uh, naive. These children need money to support themselves and to help their parents. So the day needs to be addressed in terms of how we educate our children. We have two-year and four-year institutions that can play a much greater role, a bigger role, Our teacher education programs are certainly not hitting the mark because of some of the challenges that we have in our public school system as well as our suburban school system. So we really have to take a hard look at making some hard changes and altering the prospectus in terms of how we educate. Extended days, weekend programs, children don't need to be off all summer. If a child is two years behind academically, he doesn't need to be off on vacation the entire summer. Two weeks, three weeks is more than sufficient. There are some wonderful activities that can be developed for those children to help them develop to help them develop academically and socially as well. And being in school is not a chore. If they're going on field trips, the educational process is is one which is enormous, and they can't afford to be behind. So it really behooves us to take a serious look at how we educate children. There's something that'll be coming out hopefully in the near future. Uh, and I'll say one other thing: some of our children need to be in boarding schools. Mm-hmm. Boarding schools like a pilot, I think I read about um, in, is it the Baltimore area or the D.C. area? SEED program, the only urban boarding school in the country, Washington, D.C., and also in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, it has its ups and downs and its bumps. However, it's a good, what that's just one approach. That's the extended approach. There's also, I call the poor person's approach to boarding school, which is something I can go into at another time. But this is an intensive, but it's a rational approach to helping our children. If we look at how much money we spend with DCF, we look at education, 
some of that money could go towards education as opposed to DCF and also uh, in for prisons and in, in incarceration. It's much cheaper to deal with them K through three as opposed to when they become adults. There's a lot of important issues, again, in this book, uh, The State of Black Hartford 2016. Um, identity is also um, explored. Let's talk about that. A lot has changed uh, since 1994. Um, we've heard a lot about the Black Lives Matter movement the last uh, two and a half years. Um, tell us your personal perception of, of black identity and how it's changed and how the public perceives black Americans. In the United States of America, there's one thing that drives us all. It's called economics, and it's money. It's green. But also, in order to participate in the process, one needs to be well-prepared and armed in terms of education. Uh, it is critical. And without the education, you're not going to survive in this country. You're just not going to survive. So for any, whether you're African-American, black, irregardless of your race, education is critical. However, then there's perceptions and attitudes and views. I was listening to a cut coming in here this morning, Black Violin. These are, call them young bloods. They play the violin. They're classically trained, but they, they, it's a fusion, hip-hop, and a variety of things. There was a piece on there called Perception. Perception is this young man, six foot two, weighs 245 pounds, and he plays the violin. So if you look at him, you think he plays football. No, he plays the violin. Um, he's prepared. He's academically prepared to play the violin. His interpretation may be a little bit different, but he also can play in a symphony. It comes down to stereotypes, perceptions, views, expectations. Frequently, I have colleagues and friends, they walk into corporate headquarters, they walk into corporate rooms, and they're by themselves. There's nothing worse than being alone. I've been there, done that. But also, it prepares you, okay, I may be alone in terms of race, but I've got the intellectual capabilities, I've got the skill, I've got the degrees, I can compete with anyone. The perception is something that's eating us alive. We're still struggling with perceptions and attitudes about people. I'm speaking with Stanley Battle, senior editor of the Black of the State of Black Hartford 2016, a compilation of essays and case studies exploring the lives of African Americans living in our capital city. We're going to continue our conversation with Stanley, and when we come back from the break, we're going to expand the conversation to the rest of our state. What are the issues most important to the black community? You can join the conversation. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on Connecticut's black community. 11% of the state residents are black, according to the U.S. Census. What issues matter most to them? I was speaking with Stanley Battle, senior editor of the State of Black Hartford 2016, a board member of the Urban League of Greater Hartford, also director of the University of St. Joseph's Master of Social Work program. And joining us now in studio is Amos Smith. He's president and CEO of Community Action Agency of New Haven. Amos, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I was asking uh, Stanley before the break a little bit about perception and how it's changed in America when we look at black Americans. What has been your experience? Perception drives everything. It doesn't really matter what the truth is. I mean, for the last eight years, we've had an African-American be president, but yet there was a sense of, I think, Stanley into this conversation about this, perception that, that literally we didn't really have a president. And so... I think that that when you think about what uh, Barack Obama's had to do to to get to where he uh, ended up, it could be discouraging for people who are going down the route of of academic readiness and preparation and scholarship. And so the message, uh, some of the stuff that I actually wrote about in the 
in the uh, state of Black, uh, Black Hartford was about the need for African-Americans to keep the dream and the work of Barack Obama alive. It is us that has to tell that story because America has a history of writing black people out of history books. So, Amos, I, our producer told me that you are from very familiar with Hartford. You lived in the capital city for some time before moving down to New Haven? I absolutely did. I just moved to New Haven after spending 35 years in the Hartford area. I moved to Hamden actually about a year ago. But I lived here in Asylum Hill, which is where this, this uh, program is taking place. I lived on Irving Street and on Winchester Street in North End. But I worked in every community in this, in this city. So tell us, uh, what has changed in Hartford? If we, if we read the state of black Hartford, a lot of, of disparities still exist. But what are some positives? Well, black people in, in, in Hartford hasn't uh, really fared well, at least working class and poor, poor people. Middle class, upper middle class black people are going to relatively do well because I think, as Dr. Battle actually said, is that if you have an education, you have a chance. If you have less than a college degree, you're actually going to struggle because many people with college degrees are actually struggling. The thing that is most disappointing is that uh, during the, uh, the time that I was most actively working in the north end of Hartford and working with children across the city, there was a hope that these communities would improve. In fact, the north end and the northwest end have gotten worse. The pockets of poverty now expand the entire uh, stream of the north end and northwest end where parts of the North End were really middle-class and upper-middle-class communities, but for lack of investment, lack of vision, lack of commitment, and lack of the residents in Hartford to hold the elected official and each other accountable has is, is really become a concern and a problem. There's new leadership now in the city of Hartford. Where do we go from here? I'll ask you first, Amos, and then we'll have Stanley weigh in. I don't know Mayor Bronin, but I, I guess in any new leadership there are has to be hope. The residents saw fit to vote him in. I think that uh, Mayor Bronin has an opportunity that his predecessors had and missed, uh, at least the last two predecessors. And, and, and in the book, I write about the fact that, that if you look at the last 30 years, Hartford has had about six mayors. Two have, been, two have been white, two have been black, and two have been Puerto Rican. The last three have all had the advantages of a strong mayoral form of government. The first three did not. Part of the challenge of Mayor Bronin is to ensure that a mixture of investments happen in the North End to incentivize hope in those communities, which has not happened. Typically, when you look at the city, if you look at the North End, Asylum Hill, and the South End, essentially when the city decides to build in the the, um, the Asylum Hill downtown and South End, they actually build with a focus on corporate interest and economic drivers, which are for-profit entities. When it looks to bring programs in and build in the North End, they're typically assault programs, the government-sponsored programs, which have a finite period of, of, uh, of, of life to them. And therefore, it, the North End does not have the opportunity to hire its youth, to inspire children with work, and to show kids that, that role models and, and hope uh, exist. And I I grew up with the belief of, of uh, a man that we don't hear much about, and that's Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson used to say, keep hope alive. Well, you can only do that if children see inspiration, and they can gather inspiration from seeing people who are doing and making possible the things that they could dream about. And so Hartford is different because I think that the way that we invest in the city is different. 
North End is basically sponsored by government, uh, whether it's local, state, or federal. The Asylum Hill downtown is, is promoted and driven by corporate and private interest. And in order for a community to be vibrant, you need to have the same uh, mixture of investments in the North End as you do in the South End, or else the North End will continue to suffer. Let's talk about federal investment, because a couple of years ago, I think it was uh, 2015, actually, there was the announcement that parts of the North End were going to be the uh, federal promise zone. Now, the government has a lot of money to spend. And when the government makes a commitment, it can, it can change life for generations, except that that should not be the only investments that occur in the North End. In order to make the promise zone work, you've got to have an inspired private interest. You've got to have for-profit interests that... And some of that interest has to be among people, particularly black investors, people who may have an interest in ensuring the stability of of that neighborhood. And we have to see the north end of Hartford just as we would see downtown Asylum Hill and the south end. And so it makes no sense to me how in a city of poor people that on average the poor people in the north end make 12500 and the poor people in the South End make seventeen five. That additional $5,000 $5, difference for poor people makes a big difference. But why does that difference exist? Is it because, you know, government pays poor people in the South End uh, more than they do in the North End? No, that comes from private interest. That comes from people being able to work in locales in their community and businesses in their community in the South End that are not available in the North End. That's essentially what the main differences are. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about uh, black Connecticut, not just Hartford, but um, black Americans living around our state. Stanley Battles in studio with me, senior editor of the State of Black Hartford 2016. Also Amos Smith, president and CEO of Community Action Agency of New Haven. I wanted to bring into the discussion now uh, Sabira Gordon. She's executive director of the Connecticut Commission on Equity and Opportunity. Sabira, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you. So, Sabira, we wanted to take a, a you know a wider look at uh, black Americans living here in Connecticut, not just in uh, Hartford and New Haven, and we thought you'd be the right person to, to talk about uh, the state of black Connecticut. Uh, what does it look like? Well, I think a lot of what's been said is, you know, we have an, uh, we're in a place in time where we have an opportunity to go up. I think um, Connecticut is poised to make a lot of good changes for the future, but we have to have people, I think, residents and policymakers alike that are invested in seeing African Americans or black Americans in the state move forward. Um, For many years, there have been policies in place that have kind of marginalized the African American community. If you look at laws, um, criminal justice laws, housing laws, many of the different things in place that are, that have kind of been set up in order to keep African Americans from success, from being successful and kind of moving forward and achieving the American dream. So I think African Americans here in Connecticut are faced with many uphill battles, but none that are not being able, that are not winnable. I think that, you know, with the right investments in the right communities, we can actually see a change. I think our schools is, if you would ask me kind of what one of the number one problems are, is that our education system in the urban centers are not doing well. They're actually failing horribly. Um, I think it really is time for us to make some serious investments so that our urban schools are on par with our suburban schools and we're actually addressing the real needs of the kids who are coming into those classrooms, many of whom are not prepared 100% 
and our schools need to be able to equip them to be successful for the future. If you live in the suburbs, we hear often about investments and state money uh, going to our cities like Hartford, like New Haven, like New Britain, uh, Bridgeport. People in the suburbs might think, you know, they get plenty of money and they're still failing schools. What do you say to them? I think money is one thing, but the right investments in the right places are very important. I've worked a lot on making sure that we have positive role models that look like the students who are in the urban centers, which a lot research shows that if you have a if you have a teacher or an administrator of color, a child of color does a lot better. Our urban centers are sitting at very low rates of um, minority teachers and administrators. If you look at um, how we address funding, funding goes directly to the school system. I don't know if we're actually addressing how each student is impacted by the funding that comes into that school. If we look at literacy, we're not focusing on ensuring that all of our students are actually reading by the third grade, which is, what, which is the, one of the number one indicators about success or failure. So it's not necessarily a full-on money issue. It's about how we're addressing policy and how are these policies being implemented to ensure that our students in our urban centers are being successful. Because the level of expectation and the level of success that we see in suburban schools, it's just not there in our urban centers. There are some schools that are doing excellent and doing great, but across the board, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Sabira, what did you think of Stanley Battle's uh, earlier point where he said, you know, there are uh, black families with successful, um, you know, they have good income, their kids are successful, they're going to college, they're getting careers, but we're not engaged with them to find out, you know, what worked for them. I think that is very true. And um, the board of my commission is, I think we have a lot of very successful African-Americans across the state, and we're trying to do that. We're trying to make sure that we're engaging those individuals who have, you know, quote-unquote, made it, and trying to see how we can help those who are struggling. But I do think, I know it's really, you know, difficult for a family who has done all the work and put all the work in to get to a point and then to think about how will you help the next generation. But I do think it is upon us who have made the system work for us to really try to engage those who have not. But I think, as I don't know if the onus should be on the African-American families who have been successful. I think it's up to policymakers to really put policies in place that will help those families. I do think it would be helpful if successful African-Americans are part of the solution, but I don't think they're the only solution. Stanley, do you want to react? Leon Howard Sullivan, one of the great uh, leaders in this country, was responsible for getting Nelson Mandela out of, pres- out of prison. I was a Sullivan Spates uh, distinguished professor at the University of Wisconsin, and I had an opportunity to spend some time with Dr. Sullivan. This man was brilliant, walked around with holes in his shoes. First, uh, he was on the board at uh, General Motors, first African-American. One thing that I learned from Dr. Sullivan is you better give back. You better give back. And the only reason we're here is because of somebody gave it to us. So I feel strongly about this, that successful African-Americans must give back, whether it's time, participation in the community, and, yes, money. Um, Historically, black institutions are dying because students who went to those institutions are not giving back enough. And serving as a president of two HBCUs, it's a real struggle when you only have 1% or 2%, maybe 3% of the population who are graduates of the institutions giving back. And there's reasons why they don't give back. However... There's no, we don't have any other option. The only other point I, I want to make is certainly the churches have been very engaged and responsible for supporting it, uh, for support in the community, but we can't turn our backs on our own. 
and particularly on our children. We certainly can't turn our backs on adults as well. So we need to get over it. We need to take full responsibility for it. However you want to do it, it's got to be done because we can't rely on, on, on corporations, not 100%. We certainly can't rely on the state government and the federal government because they're not going to give it to us. And that whole notion of giving, nobody's going to give us anything. No one's going to give us anything. So we have an obligation and a responsibility to give back and work very hard and vigorous. My, my saying is give till it hurts. Give till it hurts. I want to take a couple calls now. Aaron's holding. Aaron, you're on the show. Hi. Yeah, I, so I'm uh, the executive director of a nonprofit called Open Communities Alliance. It's focused on addressing the fact that Connecticut's one of the most segregated states in the country. And I really agree with a lot of what the guests have said about investment in communities that are struggling. That's really critical. But I also want to just ask a question about something that hasn't been mentioned yet that I think is really important. There are two reports that have come out over the last couple of years that talk about how moving to places that are less poverty concentrated changes outcomes for families. And that doesn't just say everyone has to move. It says that the environment really matters. Um, It has a big impact on kids' cognitive abilities because they're not exposed to violence, and it has increased income for kids who, who move drastically by hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hartford has been asked to take on really an unfair amount of subsidized housing that has spurred poverty concentration, limited choices, and overwhelmed under-resourced communities. We really haven't tried to focus on housing segregation, and I'm wondering if the guests could comment on that. All right, Erin, thank you for your uh, question. Uh, Amos, do you want to take that? She's talking about uh, segregation um, and housing. Uh, Having been a person who grew up in the segregated South and, and didn't really go to school with white people until I was a senior in high school and then in graduate school, housing choices matter. And I believe that any time that we overly uh, have uh, a dense populations of any one particular kind of ailment or ill, it produces poor results and poor outcomes. So housing in, in relationship to productivity and positive outcomes make a difference, if, if that's the point. And that's essentially the point I've been making with regard to the North End, South End issue. The South End has a greater a mixture and diversity of, of businesses and housing stock, and it also has what I think are, are pathways. What's important, an important difference about uh, working with struggling families is the ability for them to have pathways out of poverty. And you only do that if there is a, a strategic connection to people who are upwardly mobile and people who can inspire kids to actually stay on track. And typically, each of, if you think about the Irish population, or the Italian populations. Most of the working class families in, in, in many cities in America, if you were Irish, you typically went into the police department. If you were, if you were Italian, you typically went into the uh, fire department or something like that. There is nothing strategically that actually incubates African-American kids. And I think that there are a lot of black organizations that are giving back. And, and I agree with Dr. Battle. We can actually do more. I'm, I'm a product of a of a poor community in a segregated South, and and it was because of the inspiration that I got from people who actually were able to go to college and make a difference that that inspired me to want more. Housing, poverty, living in more prosperous communities actually cuts down on some of the anxiety that people have to deal with while they also learn. But some kids also take those same 
those same circumstances and use those as inspirations for greater success. When you think about the leaders of the last 40 or 50 years, most of those leaders were educated in in African-American schools. They weren't typically, in fact, the larger white universities weren't available to them. And so to think that we can't educate kids in a in a predominantly black community is, is a misnomer, but it has also to do with what the other antecedent supports are in those communities. If kids are going to bed and people are shooting around them and they've they've had a friend that's that's been shot or that's that's been beat up, uh, it's hard to focus on anything other than surviving. And so school doesn't matter. And if one grows up and believes that that their parents or their community can't really protect them from gangs, that whatever else is important to the rest of us won't be important to them because survival is the thing. And I think that, that we went through a period where surviving was was a, sort of a thing that we used to think you'd say to somebody, how are you doing? They said, I'm surviving. Well, we had moved to a place where we thought that we were thriving, and something happened. Something seriously happened psychically, and something happened in terms of the pathways to progress. And so those who made it tended to be able to move out of the black community, and we left the black community saddled with less well-to-do people and therefore less investment and less uh, accountability of uh, political leaders and uh, business leaders to those communities. And so I think that the North End suffers and poor community suffers because what you leave behind in poor communities are nonprofits, churches, and small businesses like beauty salons, barbershops, and fast food restaurants. And that's a recipe for disaster. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about black Connecticut. Coming up, we can't forget about the Gold Coast. We'll hear from a black resident living in Greenwich after a short break. This is Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on the black community in Connecticut. In studio with me is Stanley Battle, senior editor of the State of Black Hartford 2016, also a board member of the Urban League of Greater Hartford, and Amos Smith, president and CEO of Community Action Agency of New Haven. On the phone with us, Sabira Gordon, executive director of the State Commission on Equity and Opportunity. And we're going to bring one more in. Joining us now for the conversation is Bobby Walker, Jr. He's a Greenwich resident, also CEO of the Boys and Girls Club of Greenwich. Bobby, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. So tell me a little bit about how you ended up in Greenwich. Uh, for me, this has been a long journey. I mean, I, I actually born, bred, and raised in Dallas, Texas. I was actually an educator down there for uh, at my former high school for five years, moved to Baltimore for five years, and my wife and I relocated to Connecticut in 2005. My wife is a principal at uh, an all-girls private school, Greenwich Academy. I was once a principal at a co-ed private school Stanford, uh, in Stanford called Kingo Haywood Thomas. And two years ago, I was fortunate enough, uh, blessed, I should say, to take this position as the CEO of the Boys and Girls Club of Greenwich. And what has that experience been like? You know, one of the reasons we wanted to do this show is uh, so often in America, we uh, tend to generalize. We generalize groups and genders of people, depending on where they're from. Uh, you live in Greenwich. What was it like when you moved down there? I mean, you can imagine. I mean, growing up down south and, and even moving into Baltimore, you hear all the stereotypes of Greenwich. So when we made the move from Stanford actually into Greenwich in 2010, I had those same concerns, you know, wondering how um, I'd be perceived, 
uh, wondering how my family would be perceived. And, and, and I have to be honest, there, there are, you know, there are those same disappointments that you would have whether I was down in Dallas or anywhere else that I've lived. But I was actually pleasantly surprised that I didn't encounter quite as much um, resistance, fear, or, or um, non-acceptance as I thought I would. I mean, it's not to say it didn't happen, but definitely not on a scale that you sort of think of stereotypically when you hear Greenwich. Now, you lead a reputable, reputable organization, the Boys and Girls Club. Um, if you weren't doing that, do you think the reaction would be different to you? You know, definitely. I mean, one of the things here in Greenwich, um, the Boys and Girls Club in, of Greenwich, pretty much any man that's probably between the ages of 30 and 75, at one point or another, he probably attended the club. And many women, after the club went co-ed in the late 80s, early 90s, definitely would have attended as well. So the, the, the club itself is sort of a calling card in Greenwich. And so my, my title, my position, and definitely when I wear a Boys and Girls Club logoed shirt out in public, you know, that means something to people. And I think that that has afforded me at least a level of access to, to Greenwich both uh, politically, uh, socially. Uh, that, that, that has definitely helped me out. But, you know, it would definitely be different. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty big guy, so when I walk down the street, I tend to con- uh, command a little bit of attention, but that attention recently, particularly as I represent the club, has been different than what I thought it would be. And tell us about the African-American uh, population in Greenwich and, and what their experience is. So, you know, the African-American population in Greenwich sort of spread all over town, although it is very much concentrated in one of the uh, lower-income areas um, in the west side of town. And for us, that's where a significant number of our kids come from. But here in Greenwich, you'll have the folks on the west side of town, but you also have an African-American doctor and his family living on North Street, which is one of the more expensive areas that you can live in, or people living in backcountry Greenwich and some of the, as we call them, the mansions back there. But I still think that from those people I've spoken with, I think that there's still a unified kind of experience, that there still are things that are universal in the African-American experience in this country, that no matter where you live, I think they still are present, even here in Greenwich at times. Mm. You know, one thing we haven't touched on uh, this hour is the role of black youth in this discussion. And so I wanted to start with you. Um, how can we continue to bring the, their voices into this conversation? I think the main thing, and, and, and I remember um, one of my youth here just saying, you know, I wish adults would listen to us more. That as we're trying to fix this world, I think we, I think I 100% agree that we're leaving out that particular voice, the kids who are currently living in it. And sometimes they may have their own opinions, and I, I don't think they should be dismissed. I think they should be heard and sometimes uh, catered to. And one of the things that we've done here at the club, and I think this was mentioned earlier about people giving back. One of our big missions, any child here that has graduated and gone on to college, every time they're home, we ask them to come back to the club to talk to the young people who are behind them about the path that they took and what they've done to make themselves successful and sort of how they performed in school and some of the challenges of going off to a college or a university or even getting your first job. And so we've tried to empower the young people here at the club as much as possible to have an impact on the world that they live in. Just a couple minutes left to the show on Stanley Battle. How do we keep their, their voices in this conversation? I've been working with young people for my entire career. And mentoring, obviously, is important. Um, I spent about seven years with kindergartners. When I served as president, I worked with kindergartners. When I was a full professor, I worked with kindergartners. My wife and I had a young man live with us for a year who was a gangbanger. So the reality is this. uh, They're all around us. You've got to listen. But bring them into some of the natural situations that you're in. For instance, take them out to eat. 
one of the most engaging experiences I've ever had in my life was taking out a few young men to eat. They didn't know what to do. They looked at the menu and they were in shock. Everything I did, they did it because they had never been out to eat, going to a concert, uh, letting them come into your office where you work at. You don't have to wait till the, 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 to bring your daughter or your son. Bring them to work. Let them come in to see what you do. It's not that magical. Let them see what the real world is about. Demystify reality. Let them be a part of the process. I don't care whether they're male, female, black, white. doesn't make any difference. Let them in. Give them a voice. Whether it's music, whether it's uh, poetry, whatever they want to do, listen to it. Sometimes they go off, but listen. We're not doing that. I don't think we've done enough of that uh, in the past, and we certainly need to do more of that in the future. But they need to be a part of the process because things are so complex um, and so complicated that we need them to help us now. Hey, Ms. Smith, just a couple of minutes. Where do we go from here? Both in Hartford and New Haven, there are conversations, at least this last election has spurned a number of conversations among and across uh, each of the communities, at least Hartford and New Haven, both within the black community and across the black community. We need to talk to each other, and we need to find some common agreement around ways to really live out our humanity for our children. I think Dr. Battle was correct. Uh, when I was working with kids here in, in Hartford, Dr. Fred Adams, uh, uh, a very famous and, and recognized name in this community, used to take out eight of my kids to dinner so that they could actually have a pathway to look at success in different ways. I want to thank Amos Smith, President and CEO of Community Action Agency of New Haven. Also, Stanley Battle, Senior Editor of the State of Black Hartford 2016, a board member of the Urban League of Greater Hartford. And Sabira Gordon, Executive Director of the State Commission on Equity and Opportunity. Uh, the hour goes fast with a lot to talk about. I appreciate uh, your, each and one of yours time today. And I want to thank our producers, Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown, and our technical producer, Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. And Bobby Walker, Jr., thanks so much for joining us.